good morning. How are you? Hey, welcome. My name's Lance, pastor here at Falls Church. How are you, Randy? Good. We're uh, continuing this series, Jesus, King of Kings, and um, I want to declare from the beginning, we have a king, and his name is? Jesus. Amen. We left off last week with um, Samuel ending the error of the judges, or era of the judges, and as Israel's leader, as a prophet, kind of serving as a prophet and a priest at the same time. But even after his warnings of Israel's cry for a king, the people still, uh, still argued their case of wanting to be like all the other nations on the earth. The prophet warns them, explains in graphic detail how this request will work out uh, for their demise. The pain, uh, the difficulties that will come their way, their own family members uh, taken into the king's service, separated, uh, their own property given to the king's uh, friends and family, but they persist in wanting to be like all the other nations of the earth. It only takes one king before you see division, confusion, jealousy, and the dark side of power and money. After the first three kings, the kingdoms are divided because of this hunger for power, the pride of life, and the sins of the flesh. Nineteen kings in the northern kingdom, that all were disobedient to the Lord. Twenty kings in the southern kingdom, eight who obeyed the Lord and honored Him, twelve who disobeyed and and reaped uh, the suffering uh, of their decisions and choices. First Samuel, Second Samuel, the author of those letters, those books, are un, it is unknown. It's a long tradition that that prophets, rabbis, men of God, kept journals to trace the historical journeys of God's people and that they, that they are the, the unknown voices who penned this narrative, one of the, one of the great narratives uh, throughout the, uh, all of Scripture, First and Second Samuel. And they, their, their, uh, their ability to archive and to maintain the historical journey of God's people uh, has been inspiring, is inspiring. In this series, I'll often use the term the narrator, since, I, since we don't know who the actual author is. When I refer to the writer who, uh, in the text that is telling the story, the transition from theocracy or God-led to a monarchy or a human ruler was a painful one for God's people. And it gets confusing as, as the next chapters and the next books, book, uh, books unfold as to how God is working through all the mess. And maybe this can make it easier to understand. Dr. Arnold argues contemporary scholarship has simplified this transition in leadership for us. He said it this way, approaches applying anthropological 
and macro-sociological the theory to the traditional archaeological and textual data assists us in understanding this dynamic transition. Does that clear it up for you? Maybe I'll read it again. Approaches applying anthropological or macro-sociological theory to the traditional archaeological and textual data assists us in understanding this dynamic transition, which doesn't clear it up for me at all. But it, what it does say to me is that there are complications in understanding the new leadership model of an earthly king and yet God still desiring obedience and righteousness, the kings all couldn't do whatever they wanted. They still had to give an account to God for their actions. Back to selecting the first king uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a Benjamite, man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeus. Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. I didn't really look up the Hebrew pronunciations of all of them, just to be honest. Kish had a son named Saul, as a handsome and young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, as he was a head taller than anyone else. The narrator mentions on purpose the names of his family, which gives us an indication that Saul was from a family lineage of good character, probably wealthy, good, uh, distinguished Jews that, that carried on good Jewish traditions. That meant, like they're on purpose mentioning his family, saying he's from good stock. You know, He comes from a family of good, God-fearing folk. Some scholars argue Saul had everything the people believed qualified him to be their regal king. Tall, dark, and handsome. If that's you, look at your neighbor and say, mm-hmm. And from a wealthy, respected family. Look at your neighbor and say, eh, can't win them all. <laughs> Could it be, though, that God chooses this first leader who fulfills the people's idea of, of a great king that would make them like the other nations of the world? Because when the Lord chooses a king himself, when Saul dis disqualifies himself, he chooses someone who's not an imposing figure. As a matter of fact, before Samuel sees David, he's sure that God has chosen David's brother Eliab, uh, uh, and David, you know, he's older and, and better looking and tall, just like Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we'll read in a few weeks, says, when, when they arrived, Samuel saw uh, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So back to 1 Samuel chapter 9. The narrator tells a long story about the tall, good-looking young man Saul and the selection process or the process of him realizing and finding out and being appointed as the first 
king of God's people. Verse 3, chapter 9. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for lost donkeys. Okay, I don't know. Must have been significant investment. Probably a little herd of donkeys. Is that what you call? What would you call a group of donkeys? Anybody know? What? A flock of what? <laughs> I couldn't hear what Davy said. A murder of donkeys? Hey, who knows? I wish we had a small handheld device where we could access any information we needed at any point. That would be nice. So if you have yours and you look it up, then you can tell me later. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim. They're looking all around for this group of donkeys, this, this brood of donkeys, this family of donkeys. Uh, they looked through the area of Shalisha. They, they didn't find them. They went to the district of Shalim. They didn't find them. They, well, they went through the territory of Benjamin, but they didn't find them. And when they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come, let's go back to my fa- or, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. We've been all over the region. We're searching high and low from village after village, region after region, area after area. Time is passing. I don't know how many days, but he's saying pretty soon my father's going to be more worried about my life than the lives of these or the value of this little herd uh, of school of donkeys. What? Drove? Okay, that makes sense. Drove of donkeys. I don't know why. It sounds like it. It just sounds right. Thank you. But his servant replied, look, in this town, there is a man. Look, in this town, there's, there's this man of God, and he's highly respected. Everyone, everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he'll tell us uh, what way to take. He's going to, maybe he'll help us find these donkeys. Because uh, if I don't find them, my dad's going to kick my um, donkey. No, just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I knew I'd fit that in somehow. It wasn't in my notes. Lord, Lord, forgive me. Verse 7. Saul said to his servant, if we go, what, what, what can we give the man? We don't have anything. And the servant says, hey, look, I have, this, I have this coin. We'll give it to the man of God. He'll tell us, you know, which way to go. And uh, formally, verse 9 says, in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet today used to be called a seer could see into the future, could know things, okay? Verse 10, good. Saul said to his servant, let's go. And they headed into the town. They went up the hill. Uh, There's some women drawing some water. And they said, hey, is the the man of God here? uh, At verse 12, he's here. Uh, He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He comes to our town uh, to sacrifice to the high place. And soon you'll find him. Go up to the high place. He'll he'll eat. The people began. I got to speed read this because there's just a lot of text here. Invite Yip. Go on up. You should find him about this time. He's up there eating. The, they went up to the town, and they were as they were entering it, Samuel coming toward them, and he was on his way to the high place. Now, the, the narrator's kind of hidden the identity of this man of God, and we find out, oh, it's, it's Samuel in the place that they're going. Now, the day before... Uh, Saul came, the Lord revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord was with him. This is the man I spoke to you about. He'll govern my people. The Lord speaks to him. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where... 
the seer's house is. Where He says, I, I, I'm the guy. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I'll send you on your way, and I'll tell you that uh, I will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, oh, that tells you how long they were traveling, by the way, three days. Do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom, all, uh, to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, but, but I'm a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel. Is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And Saul, Saul is uh, reflecting his own uh, maybe, maybe disbelief or like this is kind of surreal. This, how can this be happening? I, there's no indications in his life or in his family. There's, there's anything, but he, he's certainly not feeling qualified or worthy and, and probably not feeling very spiritual. You know, like, wow, this, is a, this, is, this would be a, this would be a, a big a deal to be the spiritual leader over a, a nation that up to this point it had been men of God like like Samuel speaking, hearing from God, giving direction to the people, and now you're saying uh, I'm going to be in charge. Uh, uh, verse 22. Then Samuel brought Saul, servant to the hall, seated them in the front. Anyway, they have a banquet, they have some food together, and and, and if they came down from that, they're ready to depart. And Samuel tells Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead. I have a message from God for you. And chapter 10 begins, then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, said, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Samuel also told him a bunch of stuff that was going to happen to him. People he would meet, stuff they'd have in their hands, uh, prophesying going on, people, and, 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 and as the chapter 10 unfolds, all the things that Samuel said would happen to Saul as he left there, they all unfold exactly as, as he said. Saul was out looking for the donkeys, the brood, was no, grove, was it, was it grove? Grove, dang it, drove of donkeys back and forth throughout the region. And he ends up in front of a prophet that he believes he's just trying to find out some information about his drove of donkeys. And it just happens to be the guy who's looking for him to anoint him over Israel. How random. How, how improbable. We talked about Wednesday night in our guys on campus life group, chain reactions that one decision can make, and then sometimes you look over your life and there's decision after decision after decision leads you to the point you go, if all those things hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened, right? We all have those kind of uh, connections in our mind and relationships and careers and family. Um, and uh, by the way, not this Wednesday night, but the following. We're doing a family meal on Wednesday night, and the ladies are starting a new trek, a new study, a Beth Moore study. So it's a good time if you haven't been doing anything Wednesday night. You're looking for a growth time. We have men's, women, youth, kids, and be a good time to join us uh, for a family meal, eat together, and, and preview the, the new session. And uh, we'll finish up in, in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, and then I'm sure we'll 
start another little study for a few weeks as we align with the ladies. But, but we did talk about Wednesday night, uh, the ripple effect in, in life often. What are the random things in your life that sometimes you look back and go, wow, those weren't random at all. Like, if those hadn't happened, then this, I wouldn't be in this spot. And what are the chances? All the random searching from village after village after village after village, here to there, and we hear about this guy who might be able to give us some information, and we have just a little coin, and we get the information. We not only get to the place, but we see the guy, and we're in front of the guy, and, and, and then the guy tells us all the things that are going to happen, and all of those come true, and what are the odds? Paul uh, Deutschman told the story of a young man after World War II taking a subway train in Brooklyn. His name was Marcel Sternberger. Marcel. Marcel was getting on a subway. Crowded time of the day, and he took a route he had never ridden on before because he was going to visit a friend who was very ill. And as the subway door was ready to close, and he squeezed his way in, another young man, in a split second, jumped up and jumped out of the subway, opened a seat for him, and he slid in. Now, Marcel himself was born and raised in Hungary, and he ends up sitting next to another guy. He finds out his name is Mr. Paskin. But what caught his eye is he's, he's born and raised in Hungary and now living in Brooklyn just after the war and he sits down and Mr. Paskin is reading a newspaper from Hungary, you know. So of course they instantly strike up a conversation and he starts listening to the story of Mr. Paskin and, and, and his life and how he was an aspiring young law student when he was captured and sent to a labor camp in the Ukraine where he dug graves for dead German soldiers. And after the war, he traveled back by foot to his hometown, Debrecen, Hungary, and when he was able to locate a few acquaintances from his little village, they informed him his whole family had been executed in a gas chamber. Marcel, listening to Mr. Paskin's story, realized it was eerily familiar to a story he had heard just a couple weeks prior at a, a gathering where it was, it was like a, a dinner gathering for a group of people, and he had, he had met a young lady there who was from Debrecen, Hungary also. And she was sent to Auschwitz and was freed by the Americans after the war, but not before her whole family was sent to the gas chambers. And Marcel was so moved by her story a few weeks ago that he actually jotted down her name and address and number and committed to 
following up on her because she expressed how she was in this country with no friends and no family and, and just lonely, alone and depressed. Marcel looked at Mr. Paskin and said, Is your first name Bella? He said, Yes, how did you know that? He said, Is your wife's name Maria? He said, Mr. Paskin looked white and said, Yes, how did you know that? At the next stop, Marcel grabbed Mr. Paskin pulled him out of the train car into a phone booth, pulled out a little black book, didn't tell him why, dialed the numbers. And when the phone answered, he simply handed the phone to Bella Paskin and said, here, talk to your wife, Maria. How do all these random things line up together to put two people back together again. God has a way of getting what he wants to get done, done. And don't think for a moment the dark forces of this planet are controlling what is unfolding on the globe. That we have a God who has a will and his will will be done. Amen? You never know how many everyday, normal, random moments have divine implications in the kingdom of heaven. It must have been surreal for Saul because after he was anointed to, to, to be king, he goes back. Uh, the next chapters talk about he's back behind the plow and working with his oxen again. Kind of surreal when he's asked, what all happened out there while you were gone those days? Looking for them not... Uh, his, his uncle says to him, you know, where have you been Look, looking for the donkeys? What did the prophet say to you? Specifically, Saul says, he said the, don we've, the donkeys were found. <laughs> he doesn't tell him the story. It's probably too much for him to process. And maybe he wasn't sure that all that Samuel said could come true. And with man, time after time, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Will you stand with me? Lord, as we just glimpse a little bit at the, the life of Saul this morning and your lordship over us, May your Holy Spirit continue to speak to us today in our everyday real life uh, of how we can honor you, the King of Kings, and how we can look to you as our source, our strength, our leader in the midst of still trying to figure out our own, our own, our own interests, desires, our, and how they meld together and how they can, could meld together to bring you honor in a magnificent way. Continue to speak to us in Jesus' name. It's actually a pretty wild section of Scripture here where Saul heads home after all the things Samuel said was going to happen. 
They all unfold like he said. You'll run into these guys and it happens. You'll meet a procession of prophets and prophesy with them and it happens. And then Samuel brings all the tribes together before him and they all stand before him and he's looking around but he's not seeing Saul. They're all waiting for the announcement because he had told them prior, go back to your village. Now he calls them back together. The Lord's going to give you a king. And, and, but he's looking among all the clans and looking and he said, where is he? He's not here. Where is he? And the, but the Lord reveals to Samuel also that where Saul is, that he's hiding over in the luggage. I don't, you know, means probably it was a mass group of people that as they came, they probably had to bring some supplies with them, maybe, maybe some blankets, naps, and you know, little mats and things that they were going to camp out as, as they came together as God's people, as a, a big group of people. And, and Saul is hiding in, in the luggage. And when they brought him out and saw that he was a foot taller than everyone, they said, long live the king, long live the king. His first act of leadership, he goes back home. They, you know, everybody disperses again, and now he's back behind the oxen again. He's told, long live the king, but he's, I don't know what his dad said. Well, you're going to be king someday, but right now there's chores to do, so get out there. I don't, I, I don't know, but he's behind the oxen working when the news comes to him of the Philistines' attack. And uh, so Saul leads Israel Actually, it's the Ammonites, his first duty, called a duty, call of duty, slaughters the Ammonites, and Samuel gives a retirement speech. But we haven't heard the end of Samuel. The next conflict is mounting against the Philistines in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. So he has a few thousand men with him. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost, and the Philistines heard about it. Saul had a trumpet blown throughout the land. Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious or a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. And all the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. When the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore, they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in the caves, in the thickets, among the rocks, in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad, Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him that were with him, or that were left with him, were quaking with fear. And he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Where are the valiant warriors who, when faith, faith, you know, when they faced overwhelming odds, that faith rises up in them? Well, they were hiding. They were the the strength of what 
they had done together was falling apart. What happened to the confidence of waiting on the Lord was nowhere to be seen. Samuel said, wait, but look at those armies over there. I can't even count the soldiers as they're looking over. <coughs> Excuse me, before Saul's army started to scatter, he had 3,000. And the Philistines show up with 3,000 chariots and 6,000 guys that are, that, are, that are driving the chariots and soldiers so numerous that they, they can't even count. What about sending a detachment to look for Samuel? What about trying to get a message to Samuel? We're surrounded. The troops are filled with fear. We were told to wait for you. Where are you? Now would be a really good time for you to show up. But no word is sent for the man of God. Please come to pray for us. But instead, Saul says, verse 9, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings and Saul offered up the burnt offerings just as he finished making the offering, just if he would have waited a little bit longer, because he hardly gets the job done. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. When I, when I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the time you said, you said you'd be, you know, you, you're running a few minutes late here. And, and, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, and I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. Favor, So I felt compelled to, to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal, went up to Gibeah. Benjamin Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. So most of his troops, 3,000, had scattered. He's down to 600 guys with him. I don't know why. I just want three... three uh, reminders or things I think we can probably all connect with. I just call them classic rewind because I'm, I'm kind of retro. Classic rewind. Number one, overwhelmed by our circumstances. We all find ourselves in situations where we see what we're facing and other people, when they look at our situation, it's easy for other people to tell us to have confidence or to tell us not to worry or to see things from a, a perspective that's withdrawn and look at our small situation and try to put it in perspective for us. It's always easy from the cheap seats to say, trust the Lord. But what about when it's your job that's on the line? What about when you're the one that these folks are threatening or stalking or badgering? What about when the bullies threaten you? I can always see other people's struggles with calmness and faith. And yet, if I'm honest, fear can grip me pretty quickly at times. 
We can all be as smooth as a pastor reminding others to trust God. It's all going to work out for the best. But when it's our own scan that shows a mass, is, is our inclination to trust God and worship Him for all that He's done? We are creatures of the moment. Thank you, Lord, that he has grace towards those who stumble, those who resist, those who give in to fear. Classic rewind number two. We have a tendency to take matters into our own hand. You have to click it one more time, Megan. Thank you. I did, forgot to tell you that. So. We, have a, we have a habit of Taking matters into our own hands. Otherwise, we feel powerless about the situation. Like if we don't do anything, we're, we're exuding weakness. You know, like, like waiting, is, waiting is weak and waiting feels lazy. Waiting feels disengaged or like you're not being proactive to, to resolve the situation. Sometimes we, in the midst of the overwhelming situation, we take advice from the wrong people. And when it goes sideways, those that gave us advice, <laughs> coached us on what we should do when it goes sideways... They're not around. My mind flashes back in Saul's defense here. My mind flashes back to chapter 10 where the prophet said to him, Once these signs are fulfilled, Saul, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Isn't that confusing a little bit? Like the prophet says, whatever you do, the Lord is with you now. There's a statement that Samuel makes says, the presence of the Lord will come upon you. You'll be a changed man. You'll be changed by the presence and power of God. And whatever you do, the Lord's with you. I'm real defensive in my thinking. So I'm thinking, Saul, why don't you say like, hey, Samuel, you weren't around. You told me do whatever I, whatever I do. The Lord is with me. Did you mean do whatever I do? But uh, somebody wants me to quit preaching right now. Just kidding. You're okay. You're okay. But your freedom to make decisions, Saul, doesn't include disobeying God's direct order. When I react in the flesh and get ready to send a scathing text back to somebody who said something offensive to me, uh, my wife Joan usually says, I wouldn't send that. Don't, don't, don't send that. That's going to make it worse. Don't, don't do that. Classic rewind number three, we have a tendency to justify our disobedience. Excuses, they flow quickly. I waited, waited seven days, but you didn't show up. Every, everyone was freaking out. The troops were starting to leave. I, we had 3,000. Now we're down to like 600 of us. Everyone's freaking out. I, I had to do something. 
Scholars argue that every king, although God had ordained this leader of the people, every king kept a prophet near him to still inquire of the Lord. What does the, will the Lord bring favor on this decision? Shall we go up? And then the man of God brought the word from God. So even though there was this ruler kingship, there was still this sense of the Lord speaks though to us. The Lord is leading us. Will God be honored by these decisions? There was still an accountability by the leader to strive to sense and know what is God wanting us to do? So they have 600 men left against uncountable odds. When they had 3,000, the odds were against them. The, the, the armies were as numerous as the sands of the sea. That's a lot of them. As, as many as the snowflakes outside in the, in the parking lot. That'd be a lot of soldiers out there. And 1 Samuel chapter 13 says, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men were with him staying there while the Philistines camped at Michmash, and raiding parties went out from the Philistines in three detachments. Verse 19 says, Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines said, If the Hebrews, you know, if they have a blacksmith, then they can make swords or spears. And the Philistines made sure that all they had was like work equipment. So they're trying to, they're thinking about trying to muster together an army here. Not only are they against insurmountable odds, they, they, ha they don't have anything to fight against chariots and spears and swords. Just their king and, the, and, and his son, they're the only two with swords. Everybody else has like, you know, pitchfork and paint rollers and uh, 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 lawn tools, you know, <laughs> a hoe. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of what, a, a small shovel. And those 600 soldiers that are left, when God ordains it, with no weapons but a bunch of farming tools that they can pull together, things that are made to dig up the ground a little bit, these 600 men go to battle against insurmountable odds. And what happens? They're victorious. God doesn't need an army of trained military forces when he is the victory. Amen? Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8. Will you stand with me? What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it God who justifies? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. And who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall trouble Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. I, I can't think of anything that could be worse than starving and naked. Can you be any more vulnerable than hungry and naked? 
Paul says, as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the present or the future, or any powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you bow your heads? Thank you, Lord, for the promise that in Christ there is no enemy, no, no battle that is in front of us that is able to destroy us before you. That if we humble ourselves and obey, if we look to you, God, with, with humility and trust, that you will rescue us. That if in every good thing we give you thanks, and if in every trial we trust you, <laughs> uh, you will carry us through. May you keep us humble, reliant, listening, looking, waiting, trusting, believing that you're working. It's not a whole series of unfortunate events. It's not an unconnected chain. But God, you're working in divine ways. Help us to be more and more aware of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. You can find us online at Falls Church or by searching Facebook at facebook.com slash fallschurch.cc.